Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. So I've been signaled that it is time to begin, so we'll go ahead and do that. Uh, Again, we are furthering our study on the life of David, continuing on from last week. We were talking about David as a ruler, as a sovereign. We were talking about how he ruled, and we were comparing him to other people associated with him, and how they ruled and so forth. So we talked about him, we talked about King Saul, we talked about the relationship they had. So we're talking about David as a ruler, chosen heart. Uh, that he had. So what I want to do today is to talk about uh, a couple of David's sons uh, compared against him. We want to start off talking about Absalom. We'll talk about Solomon. And then we'll talk about a descendant of David uh, that he prefigured. And we'll get into Jesus Christ himself, hopefully, before the end of it. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Second Samuel. Um, we'll look at verse eight, uh, chapter 18 first. Absalom. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. Um, Think about David, we think about good things, mostly. We think about him. That is not the case with Absalom himself, his son. Um, When we read in in the account that is given building up to this in 2 Samuel, going in chapters 13 through 16, we see all that Absalom did in regards to his father, and we see him guilty of some sins, some of the sins that his father David was guilty of, and then, uh, and then some after that. So just a short list, we see Absalom guilty of hatred, murder, evil surmising, slander, deception, adultery, lying, theft. Yet through all of this, David still loved Absalom, even when Absalom would have taken everything David had worked to attain. In the battle, that was against, um, against I'm in the wrong book here, hold on. That was uh, between uh, David's army and Absalom. At the end, of course, David did not want Absalom killed, but Joab went ahead and killed him when he had the chance. When David finds out about his death, he's deeply moved, and he weeps, and he says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if I only had died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I'm not a parent. I don't feel qualified in a way to talk about that. Uh, But I can imagine, you know, when, as parents, you see your children, and you see them in pain and in suffering, isn't it? Stir up inside you that you wish you could take their place, what they're going through. And I feel that like this is the way that David was with Absalom, particularly at this time. But David and Absalom had a really complex relationship between them. And we'll go through that uh, as we go. So let's keep in mind, this all follows after chapter 12 in Second Samuel. We find there about the sins that David had committed with his adultery with Bathsheba, 
and then with his murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, in order to cover his tracks. As part of this, God institutes punishment on David. He deserved to die both for adultery and for murder, according to the law of Moses, but God was merciful on him in that regard. However, he did not let David go unpunished. And we find God laying this out in chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Nathan the prophet, speaking for God, says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So this has been told to David. And David is to be commended for repenting of his sin. He is to be commended for accepting the consequences. It would be a very difficult thing to do, but he did it. But he knows what God has laid out. He knows that there would be strife in his family. And I think that's important to keep in mind as we go through this. So, what happens is not very pretty that follows. This is really one of the hardest subjects, in my opinion, in the Bible to talk about uh, through here. But we have one son of his... Uh, named um, Amnon. He's a son of a different wife than Absalom is, but Absalom's full sister is named Tamar. And we see the egregious sin that Amnon commits in lusting after Absalom's sister and then proceeding to force himself with her uh, later, setting up deception and trapping her and so forth. And of course, we understand what Absalom's reaction to that would be. We read that David was angry with Amnon. We don't read that he did anything about it. That's what the text says. I could speculate about why that was. I figure that David probably had been... It, may, it might be kind of awkward. You had committed adultery and murder, and then you're having to lay out your punishment for what your own son did. I imagine it did. However... Something needed to be laid out. According to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 22, the penalty for rape was death. Something should have happened, and nothing did happen with Ammon. So, as it relates to what we are, are looking at uh, right now, the, lo the law should have been upheld, and that's a lesson for us in applying God's rules, consequences that followed. And there were consequences that followed, because Absalom did not forget about that. Uh, himself. So, um, so as we go later in this chapter, in this account, Absalom goes to comfort his sister, Tamar. He says to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. It's a very interesting, awkward thing to me for him to say that. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Verse 21, King David heard of all these things. He was very angry. But here, verse 22, Absalom might say one thing to Tamar, but inside himself he was practicing something else. Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two years that Absalom had sheep shears, and then it goes on into this explanation of Absalom's carefully detailed plan to set up the murderer of his half-brother Amnon in revenge for what he did to his sister. Um, so, 
just think, spending two full years, it says he spoke neither good nor he's so angry he couldn't say anything, keeping all that anger seethed within himself so long, carefully planning how he might take revenge uh, on Amnon there. Um, so, as we go on, he, he's had the sons invited to a feast. He strikes Amnon, the rest of them flee. The news comes to David. And first of all, the news comes incorrectly. It kind of reminds me of Job when Job was told that the whirlwind had killed all of his sons. Uh, in this case, verse 30, it came to pass when they were on the way, the news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments, lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, this would have been David's nephew, Answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. By the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, do not let my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. So then Absalom flees after this. So David is sitting here. He has a son that has been killed. He has a son who's also a murderer. And, uh, and this was due in part because of David's lack of action in this and his lack of judgment in allowing the sons to attend the feast that Absalom had requested. So Absalom flees to Jeshur. His mother had connections to that city with her father. And we see at the end of this chapter that David is concerned about him. And in verses 1 and 2, chapter 14, Joab perceives that the king's heart is concerned about him. And so Joab then sets this up where a, a woman approaches the king relating to a situation in her family, similar to what's gone on with Absalom and David. And as she goes through, she convinces David that the, the son should return. Well, then she confronts David about this. And so David agrees that Absalom should come back. So... This leads to something that's very puzzling to me in a way, maybe the most puzzling thing in the whole account. Uh, so Absalom does return, but there's conditions on that. It's funny. So at the end of uh, chapter 14, verse 24, king said, Joab arose, brought Absalom to Jerusalem. The king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Okay, so Absalom could return home, but he could not see the king. That's very interesting in a way. That doesn't sound like David to me in a, in a sense of being after David, a God's own heart, but there might be a couple different ways of looking at that. Um, because I think about it, well, of course, you know, I think about forgiveness. I'm glad God doesn't forgive me like that, right? I'm glad that he does, but he wants to be near me. He wants to be around me. David has said for him not to see the king's face. Um, does anyone have any comments? I'll throw it down on the floor. Does anyone have any ideas what to make of that? Why would David be like that with Absalom? Maybe you're just as perplexed as I am about it. I don't know, but I'm willing to hear some, some comments. Yes, Bill. Okay, so God had shown David mercy. 
And maybe he's showing mercy to Absalom. But why won't he allow Absalom to see his own face? Okay. So then, okay, so it's possible then that uh, he didn't want Absalom to think that he approved of what Absalom had done. Um, that's right. It doesn't sound like something David would have done, but he had murdered Uriah. Of course, he was repentant of that. Um, so, okay, that's a very interesting thought there. That's a possibility there, Jerry. Anyone else? That's a very good point. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, parents that have done things that they regret in life don't want their children to do the same things as well. So that may have been something going on there as well. Anyone else? Okay. Maybe he had hated what uh, Absalom had done, and maybe this was some sort of punishment on David. That's a possibility as well. Anyone else? All the comments are good, and this is one that's an open question. There's something the Bible just doesn't say about it. I have my own personal angle on this, I think, as well. It hadn't been brought up yet, so I'll just go and say this. Maybe... You know, saying that David has hated Absalom for what he had done, of course, that would have been against, you know, what David would have been like. Maybe hate is too strong a word in saying that. I sometimes think about this because in chapter 18 we just read, you know, he wanted Absalom spared even after Absalom tried to take the kingdom away from him. And he regretted that Absalom was killed. So maybe he had changed by that point in his thinking. But then it seems like the two ideas conflict with each other. I wonder myself if hate may be too strong a word, but perhaps it was that he distrusted Absalom, and that was the reason he didn't. Remember what we had said at the beginning of this, that God had laid out the punishment. David knew that the sword would never leave from his house. And Absalom had already killed at that point. So maybe he wanted to keep Absalom at a distance away from the house. Now what God had said was, was going to take place. I would also say that after this happens... When reconciliation is brought between the two of them, and Absalom comes in there, we would like to think, Fred, I'll get to you in a second on your comment, okay? So just, just to, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's see what happens next. So Absalom goes to Joab, Joab to get him to, uh, to uh, go and see the king. Joab hesitates, so Absalom reacts by setting uh, uh, Joab's fields on fire, and that gets Joab's attention really quick at the end of chapter 14. Uh, so Joab ends up getting Absalom to come to the king. He bows himself on his face to the ground before the king. The king kisses Absalom. So we think at this moment we see reconciliation. Maybe we have a happy ending. Father and son, all is forgiven. They're together. But no sooner has Absalom done this than at that moment he starts trying to work behind the scenes to peddle his influence and strike take the kingdom away from David. So David had good reason to have distrusted him, if possible. So that's just some thoughts that I have on that. Now, Fred, you had a comment I want to get back to on this.
right? Right. Given that Absalom, for those on live stream who might not hear, given that Absalom was guilty of some of the same sins that David had committed, maybe David had a hard time uh, confronting Absalom or meeting him because he may have seen his own self in Absalom and the, the regret and the guilt that that might have produced in David's heart. Very insightful comment there, uh, Fred. All right. Um, now, some great discussion there. I'm going to continue moving forward and pressing on on this. So, um, so he starts the process of taking the throne. I want to do point out something that one of the things that made Absalom different than David was David was willing to admit the wrong that he had done. You don't see Absalom doing that uh, in here. Um, for instance... Uh, verse 32, he says to Job, Now therefore let me see the king's face, but if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. Well, there was, uh, obviously. And, you know, Absalom was putting on a front um, with a lot of what he did. So let's go to uh, chapter 15, look at verses 2 and 6, and see what he starts doing. Okay. Well, after verse 1, After this it happened, Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, then Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Um, you know, I read that through the fence. Man, Absalom sounds like a crooked politician <laughs> with what he says. But I say that, though, in, in jest. But that's another comparison between him and David. Remember we were talking last week, differences between Saul and David, and David wouldn't do anything to harm the Lord's anointed. He wasn't like a lot of worldly rulers that would use lying and bribery and murder to try to take the throne like Absalom is trying to do right now uh, with him. So um, he's being deceitful. He did what looked like true repentance, and it really wasn't uh, with him. And another thing unlike David. So uh, just to go through some things quickly due to time's sake. So Absalom goes, he takes the throne, David has to flee. Uh, David's counselor, Ahithophel, betrays him. Uh, and so one of his best counselors, um, Absalom is getting uh, advice from him. Some of the advice he gets from him, as we learn in chapter 16, is that, of course, David had left his concubines behind. Absalom has sexual relations with them in the sight of all Israel, as God had said would happen in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, this was done because, I guess, in 
the Middle East in that culture, that would have been a sign of one ruler taking over another one by doing that. But Ahithophel also gave him that counsel for this reason in verse 21. He told Absalom to do that so that Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. That statement's kind of painful to me because in reality, Absalom was not abhorred by his father. Yet Ahithophel wanted all Israel to think that uh, in regards to it. So chapter 18, battle ensues. David wants Absalom spared, but Joab thinks it's his better judgment that Absalom should die. So when he finds him vulnerable, he kills him. And we see that David mourns over him. One of the differences, like I said, between Absalom and David is Absalom could not recognize sin uh, that he had committed. So eventually it led to his demise. He could not admit wrong. What God had said was going to come to pass. And one other thing I want to say about Absalom. With all that his father did in mishandling all that stuff and that background, Absalom could be angry at David. He'd be angry, have good reason, we would say that. Does that justify what Absalom did? It absolutely does not. So uh, uh, that's something that we need to take uh, into our lives as well. Just because with people that may have wronged us in the past does not mean that we can treat them the way that God would not have us to treat them as well. So um, that's what I'm going to say about Absalom before we get to Solomon. But I want to pause. There may be other questions, comments. There may be some disagreements or dissenting opinions, that's fine. Uh, if anyone has anything they want to say, I'll, I'll, I'll give an opportunity to, to add on. Okay, then if not, then we'll move on to Solomon. That's good. So we'll look at the other song, the son that did become king after David was. So Solomon was not the firstborn. There were other sons born before him, some of which were dead before he took the throne. Uh, he did have similarities with David. When we look at Solomon, when he was born, it's what his parents named him. Solomon's name means peace. So I'm going to throw this question out there. What was the significance of Solomon being named peace? Anyone want to say something? You think of Solomon, you think of the word peace, what do you associate with that? Okay, so his wisdom and how he um, did the duties of king, say that. Anything else? Right? Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe the word peace has a bit of foreshadowing to it, right? So David had been a man of war, but Solomon's reign would be characterized by peace in it for 40 years. So... There could be some significance there. Anybody else want to take an idea of this? Mm, yes. Right. 
Yes. The other comments I agree with on that is foreshadowing. Cindy, I think that's the number one reason why he was called that. So given what all that David and Bathsheba had had to deal with with their sin and David repenting of it and the punishment that God laid out and the death of that firstborn child particularly, that I believe that was the reason that they named Solomon peace because he brought peace to them. Um, as well. So, of course, this wasn't the only name that Solomon had. God named him Jedidiah as well in that. And that name means beloved of the Lord. So Solomon starts out really well. Uh, uh, and David had an influence on him, and we can see that in some of the ways that Solomon conducted himself. So let's look at some things that Solomon had and compare against uh, some David. <clears throat> I'll start off with the negative side first. On some things, we do read about Solomon's wickedness um, throughout the First Kings in regards to idolatry, particularly, but that originated with his marriages that he had with his foreign wives, something that kings were not supposed to do. And uh, we see that with these foreign wives that he had, they drifted Solomon's heart away from God. That wasn't in the end of all those consequences either, because in drawing Solomon away from God, eventually that led to drawing the people of Israel away from God and into idolatry as well, and something they dealt with for the rest of their existence um, as an independent country uh, there. So he sacrificed and burned incense on high places. Um, he gathered horses and chariots. That was another thing that the king was not commanded to do uh, out of De- Deuteronomy. And uh, we see uh, maybe his, the wealth got to him as well that he had is there. But on the positive side, we see his wisdom. As well, the one word we characterize with Solomon, when we think of Solomon, that's the word that comes to mind immediately. Remember, in 1 Kings 3, in maybe Solomon's finest hour, God had asked him anything he wanted that he would grant it to him. And Solomon's answer was wisdom. Not all the other things that kings ask for, great wealth, good health, deliver my enemies into my hand. All that wasn't the case. He wanted wisdom to be able to rule the people effectively. We commend him for doing that, but we ought to take a lesson to ourselves in that as well. And we talked about in the first lesson how we can tell out of Proverbs 4 that David had influence in teaching Solomon and Solomon making the choice to pursue wisdom. David wanted him to do that. Um, Think about the offer God made to him. What if God were to appear to uh, talk to you in a vision and ask you for anything you want? What would you, what would you agree to? What would most people agree to? What is it that you would want more than anything from him? I think that's interesting to think about um, in a way. Um, so, And we see that, uh, that Solomon exercised this wisdom. Let me ask, was he known for wisdom even in his own day? Across the nations that were around him? We see that, don't we? And I believe it's chapter 10 that we particularly see uh, a ruler known as the Queen of Sheba that comes to visit him. Do we not? Uh, we do, and she heard the wisdom, and she'd heard, she couldn't believe, she didn't want to believe that this wisdom she heard about Solomon was true, she thought it was just rumors. In fact, what Solomon was able to, to show her was greater than she could have even imagined that it was. Mm-hmm. So you see how people, even rulers, some, someone as significant as a queen, 
would come to hear, the, take all this effort to travel and to come and hear Solomon's great wisdom. Remarkable, is it not? What would you do? Would you go and make great links to hear such wisdom from an individual, travel very far? The point I want to make out of that is you don't have to travel very far in order to do that. The wisdom is right here, and we have that wisdom from someone greater than Solomon, and his name was Jesus Christ. And I believe it's Matthew 12. I can look that up. Where he's saying this, and he's remarking about Jonah, and he remarks about the people of Nineveh. Yeah, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment of this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, he's talking about Sheba, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. See how much appreciation there was for Solomon's wisdom? Do you have such appreciation for the wisdom of Christ that we read about in the Gospels? To read it, to study it, to learn it, to implement it in your life, to go and do it? It's a thought I want to throw out there. So, Any comment anyone make, wants to make before we continue further with Solomon? I don't want this class to end early. You might, but... I, um, Yes, Glenn. So, yeah, so Glenn was remarking in this recent uh, Supreme Court decision where they've overturned Roe versus Wade. This is in regards to abortion, of course. I don't think I have to state that in there. But seeing the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom and what people think is right and speaking of evil as if it's good and speaking of good as it's evil and, and so forth really brings that out. What, what do you define as wisdom? Where's the source of wisdom in your life? Captures it pretty good? Yes, Don. God is always the source of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right from Solomon's own mouth in Proverbs, yes. The wise man builds his house upon the rock, yes. Okay. We'll continue on for time's sake. Another thing that I want to remark about uh, Solomon, you can turn to uh, Second Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8, you want to go ahead. We have seen David display a heart of worship to God. Solomon had this in himself as well. And, and last week we went over 1 Chronicles 29, that prayer that David gave in behalf of all, in front of all the people there at the end of his reign and there in front of Solomon, and then how he, he directed the people in worship after that. Solomon has that attitude. And what we have in 1 Kings 8 is that the temple that David had wanted to build, the temple that he had prepared for and helped get everything together for Solomon to build. Solomon has gone ahead and built it. And Solomon is going to give the grand openings of grand openings uh, for the temple that is there. And so he dedicates it. And uh, uh, he first talks to the people uh, there in verse 12. The, uh, and then in verse 14, he turns around, he blesses the assembly and he says, blessed be the Lord God. He recounts um, uh, what God had done for uh, Israel. He recounts what, what, how David had wanted to build the temple, but uh, that the Lord has fulfilled what he has spoken. So verse 20, I think we ought to read this first because I'll talk about it later. 
Solomon says to the people, the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. He has made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So he says that to the people, and then Solomon turns and he gives this prayer to God. The longest recorded prayer in the Old Testament is found here. We see him laying the groundwork for the spiritual qualities that God wanted to attach to his people and the worship that they would have at the temple. So verses 15 through 21 uh, okay, we talked about that already. Uh, reverence and respect for God, uh, the relationship that God had with his father David, he reiterates it there. So going to verse 22 through 53, he talks about the distinctiveness uh, of the covenant uh, that, um, that he had with Israel. Uh, but we can see also, here's a famous verse in verse 27. You know, David had humility when approaching God. Solomon also had it, and he recognized that this grand temple that he had had its limitations as well. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? For behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built? Yet regard the prayer of your servant and this supplication. O Lord my God, listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened towards this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place, and that you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then he goes through a list of all these scenarios about sin, people sinning against um, their neighbors. Uh, when the armies are defeated because they have sinned against you, um, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, we talked about that this morning in the sermon, uh, because of sin, hear them. And you know, he goes through this whole list that uh, famine and locust plagues, if those happen and that you hear your prayers to your people and you forgive, um, even the foreigner who is not of your people, but has come from a far country, verse 41, when he comes, prays towards this temple here in heaven, your dwelling place. Uh, now, when your army goes forth in battle, hear, hear their supplication. Um, when they sin against you and you become angry with them, deliver to them and take them captive. Um, and here we see Solomon kind of foreshadowing and foretelling the captivity of the Israelites by the Babylonians later on. Uh, verse 46, for they sin against you and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where you were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. When they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul, the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers the city which you have chosen, the temple which I have built for your name. Then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions, and grant, uh, which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. And that pretty much played out with the Israelites, and with uh, the Persians especially. Um, and so he finishes 
praying and, and they have all the sacrifices that are there and it, it is grand. So like I said, Solomon was wise. He had a heart for worship. He started off so well. If only he had listened to his wisdom. If only he had kept his heart right with God. But he had it to, to get himself involved with idolatry. Now one more thing I want to point out about Solomon before we leave him. Let's go back to the point we made about the birth of Solomon. David and Bathsheba named him Solomon. They named him Peace because he brought them peace. I was looking at one author that was writing on this and made a point that I think was interesting. What would it have been like to have been David and to have seen your son, your infant son, Solomon? What would come to his mind about that? Hmm. He would remember his past, I would think, with that birth, right? Um, Mind him of his sin, how he had had Uriah executed, stealing Bathsheba, the covetousness he also displayed in that. It would think about the judgment that had been laid on him, losing Solomon's older brother in that. But it wouldn't just be a remembrance of his past, it would be a forgiveness in the present as well. So Solomon, I believe, was a demonstration of God's forgiveness of David, and it was something that David could take confidence in that forgiveness as well, even with all the punishment that he'd have to go through. Number three, it also would have seen potential in the future. Solomon was beloved of the Lord. He was going to be the one who would be the ruler um, over Israel, and sees uh, the, God sees the potential, uh, even in sinners. So, how would that relate to us today? I think I can feel all three of those things sometimes. When I come here for worship and I take part of the Lord's Supper, what do I think about? Do I remember the ugliness of my sinful past? Do I remember the forgiveness God has given me in the present? Do I think about my potential as a servant of Christ and my future reward that awaits for me in heaven? Sometimes it's good to be reminded about the past, to think about the present, and to think about the future that God has before us. So that's all that I'll say on that. Let's move to Jesus Christ real quick. We will use up what time we have. I do want to say, though, don't fret if we come up short on this. Next week we'll be talking about David as a seer, the things that he foresaw or that were promised to him. If we have enough time, I may even talk about David being a type of Christ in Old Testament prophecy. That would be something fun to go through. Uh, if we could, but anyway. So, in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, we are given two genealogies of Christ. Most often I hear one genealogy is through Moses and the others, uh, excuse me, through Joseph, the other one's through Mary. I guess that's probably true. But it shows that Jesus had the bloodline with David. The Messiah had been promised to Israel to be one of David's descendants. Christ himself was the fulfillment of God's promises to David. Shows the faithfulness of God in that. So we see David in his kingdom. In fact, in Matthew 1, it's specifically Jesus is called the son of David in that as well. It didn't mean he was David's child. It means he was David's descendant. David in his kingdom stabilizes his throne in Jerusalem. This is where Jerusalem really takes on important significance is when David is there. He conquers it, and it goes by a slogan, right? Here in Huntsville, you know, cities have slogans. Here in Huntsville, we're called the Rocket City, Right? What would be the slogan for Jerusalem? The city of David. Exactly right. So he wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem and to build a proper house for it. David could not do that, but we do know that it would be up to Solomon. And then 2 
Samuel chapter 7, we see that David is denied to build the temple, but in return, God makes a promise to David uh, there. So, um, get my right paper here. Uh, We don't have time to step through it, but we'll get to this later on. So that promise is there that uh, God would set up his throne forever. He would not lack a man to sit on his throne. Of course, that was conditional with his sons, and they did not follow through with that, and eventually the, the Israel was taken cap, uh, Judah was taken captive. Jeremiah 22, we see Jeconiah being the last descendant to have the throne. God had promised that no more descendant would rule on any throne in Judah after that. That didn't mean that God's promise to David was void. There was something else that was going to be coming afterwards. So the promise to David during the ministry of Christ, I do want to turn to Luke chapter 1. Because what was told to David in 2 Samuel 7 is fulfilled when the angel talks to Mary about the upcoming birth of her, of her son, Christ. And in 29, we see the angel Gabriel making this statement to her. I believe it's Gabriel. Anyway, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is the fulfillment of what God promised through Nathan to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. The throne of the Messianic king we find in Matthew 22. It's part of Jesus' discussion before his crucifixion with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and such like. He goes back to another Old Testament prophecy, Psalm 110, verse 1, which I believe is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But just briefly here, verses 41 through 44, the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. They were right about that. Okay, but then Jesus presses them further. He says, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? They couldn't answer that question. What that showed was Christ was the son of David. That showed that he was man, that he was human. But it also stated that Christ was the Lord of David. And that showed that Jesus was divine and shown his nature as deity as well. Romans 1, verses 3 through 4, states both of these things together. Um, Paul writes, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So, the fulfillment of God's promise to David and Christ takes place in Acts 2. Peter quotes from Psalm 16 that his body would not see corruption points that David was buried in a tomb, he could not be talking about himself. So that had to allude to Christ, and that Christ would be resurrected and sit on David's throne. And for us, we need to realize that even back in the time of David, when he was making all these prophecies to David about the Messiah, that God was already planning for the salvation of us and for mankind. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, 
send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.